Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Ellen Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Now, before we get going into the show today, I want to thank our producer and engineer, Eric Ryder, because it turns out he's also a great author, a great writer. He did a piece on the show this week that you can find at KKNW's uh, uh, homepage and, um, you know, website, and I invite you to go there. And thank you, Mr. Ryder. We sincerely appreciate that. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yeah, we have a lovely chat room, great conversation, um, lots of additional insights. I think that's the best part about it all. Everyone brings their own insights to it and gives you a way to see the same thing differently. So do come in and join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, we turn our attention once again to media manipulation. In my book, Gotcha, the Subordination of Free Will, I flesh out the counterintuitive nature of disclaimers and retractions. However, a new study reminded me of just how important it is that we all remember they simply have no power. The fact is, you can retract a story, but the research shows that even when you know the story was incorrect, you nevertheless form your opinion around the original content. So if an article insists that XYZ is harmful based on arguably reasonable evidence, then even when the article is shown to be biased or false, we generally hold to the original opinion we formed. Research has also shown that when a medicine is advertised with strong contraindications, people tend to see the medicine as more powerful and therefore more desirable. In other words, telling someone that the medicine may cause all sorts of bad things only motivates them to desire it more. Now, the new study goes a step further than a simple retraction or contraindication. It includes disclaimers designed to subvert the power of an ad. This sort of thing is referred to as subvertising. Researchers at Chapman University tested if adding disclaimers or subvertisements to altered images of bikini models counteracts the negative effects of this media on body image. The results showed that the women exposed to the disclaimers and subvertising did not report higher body satisfaction than women exposed to unaltered images, according to Frederick, uh, David Frederick, Ph.D. assistant professor of psychology at Chapman University and lead author of the study. Quoting from Science Daily, to test whether disclaimers or subvertising were effective, 2,288 women were recruited across two studies. The average age of women participating in the survey was 35. Some women were shown unaltered advertisements that featured slender women. Other women were exposed to these same images but had a disclaimer label in red stating, Warning, this photo has been photoshopped. The last set of women saw these images after they had been subvertised with different messages written across them. Examples of some of these subvertisements included Photoshop made me ripped, an image focusing on a woman's buttocks with a phrase, Why do you show that she is a person? Why don't you show that she is a person with a face and personality instead of presenting her as a sexualized body part? And a thought bubble coming out of the model's head stating, I'm thinking about that last cheeseburger I ate five years ago. After viewing the images, the participants were asked to complete established measures of body satisfaction and dieting. They were also asked how much they compared their bodies to the bodies of the models. Women who saw the subvertised or disclaimer images did not feel any better about their bodies than women who saw 
the unaltered images. Bottom line, you must be more than aware of the facts involved. You must also pay close attention to the nature of human psychology in order to guard against the sort of media manipulation that billions of research dollars has demonstrated effective. Please always remember that the underlying message in advertising comes down to the proposition that you are deficient in some way, and that's why you need their product. You are not deficient unless you accept that message. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, again, you bring up a really important subject. Uh, the fact is, you know, people can spread l lies out there, and you can be aware of the correction, but it doesn't change your opinion. You still base it on the original information, and especially right now during the political season, well, all the politicians have plenty of reason to lie up there because everyone's, you know, they've got their own views. But when you're talking about these females and body image as well, I think, you know, for that, the idea is so ingrained as to what the ideal body image is. And most most people, not just females, guys have, have the same thing. They all want to look a certain way. So it doesn't make any difference being told, yeah, this picture's been photoshopped because so what? That is still what I'm aiming for or what I would like to have and I don't have it. So therefore I'm deficient and on you know, goes that crazy self-talk. Today's guest is going to give us some pretty good insight here if you think about it you know, we have two sons university but well, one graduates this year and if they read it in a textbook if they read a history book that's the way it was that's how it is oh, and it doesn't matter that you may have lived through it and have a different experience or a different insight they they heard it in the classroom they heard it in high school they they read it in a textbook and of course today's guest is going to enlighten us on how that's not always the truthful case okay every week i read some of our letters some of your letters i should say as our well both i guess they're your letters and our letters because you send them to us as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful last week our show featured harry carpenter and we discussed the power of the subconscious mind Susie wrote i loved your show not only with this gentleman but also with david essel Alicia wrote, great show. Richard remarks, psychologists have shown that often action precedes belief. And Mark wrote, all program beliefs are subconscious. Moving on, Rose wrote, Mr. Taylor, a few years ago I was sick with lupus and you sent me your book, Self-Hypnosis and Subliminal Technology. I am now in remission. Thank you for your kindness. And I have the book in my hands now as I am writing. I love those things. Bob wrote, I had a woman ask me why I'm going to purchase a home and have a pool put in it at age 75. She said I should look at a condo where there was a pool already. I simply stated age is a number, and secondly, the association would frown on me skinny dipping late at night, so that is why I'm getting a home of my own. I love your newsletters, Eldon. Keep them coming. Well, he's talking about a newsletter for every young that we talked about. And I'll tell you what, Bob, my advice, buy that home. Put that pool in there. Go swimming starkers just as long as you can, my friend. Have fun. Jill wrote, I wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your CDs. I have several manifesting your vision, cognitive enhancement, time management, weight loss, now, and also the free downloadable from the Choices and Illusion book of yours. I really enjoy them. Thank you. And Tina wrote, thanks for the fantastic Intertalk CDs. I have used them for more than 20 years. They've saved my life. God bless you. Well, thank you, Tina, and the rest of you for your support and feedback. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, and I've really been looking forward to this. The Lies My Teacher Told Me with Professor James W. Lowen. His review of textbooks led him to conclude that they were an embarrassing combination of blind patriotism, mindless optimism, sheer misinformation, and outright lies, omitting almost all of the ambiguity, passion, conflict, and drama from our past. Now, that's a pretty big chunk. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Professor Lowen received his doctorate in sociology from Harvard University. 
He taught race relations for 20 years at the University of Vermont. Previously, he taught at predominantly black Tougaloo College in Mississippi. He now lives in Washington, D.C., continuing his research on how Americans remember their past. His gripping retelling of American history as it should and could be taught, Lies My Teacher Told Me, has sold more than one and a half million copies. He has been an expert witness in more than 50 civil rights, voting rights, and employment cases. He is also distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, visiting professor of sociology at Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and visiting professor of African American Studies at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. In 2012, the American Sociological Association gave Professor Lowen its Cox Johnson Frazier Award for scholarship in service to social justice. He is the first white person ever to win this award. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor James Lowen. Hey, I'm happy to be with you. No, it's our pleasure. I've got to tell you, honestly, um, you know, every week we have a show, and between weeks... I read the books of who the guests are. And that's a really pretty easy thing to do, uh, typically. However, I did not get completely through your book. There's too much meat. I can't skim it. I have to read it word for word. It is a great read. If you're, you know, it is a great read just from a standpoint of kind of an adventure book. And I bet you've been told that many times. Well, I've gotten some of the best emails. Let Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, I got an email, this was maybe by now three years ago, saying, uh, Dear Mr. Lowen, probably it said, um, yours is the first book I ever bought with footnotes. Um, and, this, and then about a month later, I got an email from someone else saying, Dear Mr. Lowen, yours is the first book I ever bought voluntarily. <laughs> so I thought both of those were pretty good. And I get emails from people who have finished my book who are as young as 11 years old. Oh, it, I, you know, that's a great compliment, and what a head start they get as a result of reading this book. You, you heard today's spotlight. How important do you think the media is in creating the content we find in our history books? Well, it, it, unfortunately, in a sense, bizarrely enough, I'm going to say unfortunately, I don't think they're very important, and here's what I mean. Um, our textbooks, and I, by textbooks, I mean high school history textbooks. Uh, right. Well, I, I based my book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, on my intensive reading, first of 12 high school history textbooks. I, I claim that I'm the only American ever to have finished this gruesome task. Uh, they are so boring. Um, for the second edition, I read six more, one of which was actually a, a middle school textbook. And I've learned a couple of things about these textbooks. First, the authors whose names are listed on the title page and on the front cover, so almost always, did not write the book. In fact, typically, they don't know who write the, wrote the book, and they did not even read the book. Now, they, they are famous historians, and the publishers rent their names and pay them a nice royalty, but they had nothing to do with the book whatsoever, which I wow. think is just astounding and ridiculous. I mean, I, when I'm speaking at a college, I say something like this. Look, if some of you students are stupid enough that you're going to go buy your term paper for $9.95 off the web, I hope at least you have enough brains to read the damn thing before you hand it in to your professor. <laughs> These authors, and, and I use the term with quotation marks, um, have no idea what they're saying because they don't even bother to read it. So, it, you know, we do say that journalism is the first draft of history, but that's only the case if the person writing the textbook has actually done some research. Uh, And so my next point and final point on this comment is um, these books seem to have a life of their own. Uh, I actually show, for example, how an error made way back in 1913 uh, gets continued and continued and continued uh, and still is in textbooks today, even though it got refuted in maybe 1914. Yeah, yeah. They just copy other textbooks. Yeah, let's back up a second, though. Now, you're a sociologist, okay? So, Harvard grad, studies sociology, 
I did two two things pop into my mind. First, why sociology? And second, how does that get you to be writing history books? Yeah, that is the second part. Is particularly well, sociology is a very liberating discipline. I have to say, when I went off to college, um, I grew up in Decatur, Illinois, right in the middle of Illinois and right in the middle of the Midwest, and. Um, I went to a reasonable high school, but it didn't offer sociology, and I actually didn't know what it was. Uh, and I went off to Carleton College in Minnesota, and Carleton, of course, did offer it and did teach, a, uh, did have a department of it. And I was going to be a chemist, so I was going to take chemistry naturally, and I did. Um, but you have to have distribution stuff, you know, credits, and so right. I took introductory sociology. And it was very interesting to me. I mean, it told me things about, like, my own thinking that proved to me uh, persuasive that I really wasn't thinking my own thoughts, that I was thinking what I was supposed to be thinking, given my position in society and and, uh, my age and my race and my, you know, so on. Uh, And I had a rather boring teacher. Um, And I thought, my gosh, if this course is that interesting with such a boring teacher, then I must really like the field. And so I took some more courses and, and indeed gave up chemistry and, and have never looked back. So that's how come I majored in sociology. It, it's kind of about us. It tells how our society came to be as it is. I think that's pretty interesting and pretty important. It but is, then it is. the history part. Yeah. So I go off, well, of course, the first thing I have to say is the world doesn't come up divided into, you know, sociology over here and history over there. I mean, for instance, no. my doctoral dissertation is about the Chinese folks, Chinese Americans, who live in the Mississippi Delta. Well, that's the area where the blues come from. It's the flat area between Memphis and Vicksburg in northwest Mississippi, uh, right. the blackest area in the United States, and it's got the most Chinese of any area in the South, or it did when I went there. How come? Uh, how did they uh, fare in a system that's built for two? You know, everybody knows Mississippi was segregated, black and white. What do these right. Chinese folks fit in? Well, I thought that was a good subject for a dissertation, and it was. And the book is still in print. It actually, somebody made a movie out of it. So it was a good, but my question would have to be, is that sociology? Is that history? Um, I mean, you know, it started in 1869 or so, so it's certainly history. It's certainly sociology. You know, it's just all things mixed together. Right, Right. they blend together. I I have to ask, uh, why in that area are there so many Chinese since you brought that up? Well, sure. Um, It turns out that it's exactly what happens also in the East Indies and also in the West Indies. That is to say... Um, you get a system that's built for two in, in Mississippi. White folks pretty much own the land, and black folks pretty much work the land. And the Chinese came in as kind of a middleman minority, and they almost all sold groceries. And they mostly sold groceries to the black underclass. And black folks were happy to deal with them because they weren't as racist as, as white folks. You, you may remember, for instance, that uh, you remember the name Emmett Till? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, yes. Emmett Till was, of course, a, what was he, 13 years old or something like that, uh, a young black teenager who was uh, kind of showing off to his uh, Mississippi black friends, that, the, and uh, he spoke rudely or maybe wolf-whistled at a white woman in a little grocery store in Money, Mississippi. Uh, Money is a town of about 30 people. I've been in Money. I've seen that grocery store. Um, well, uh, he got killed for it. Um there's just kind of an atmosphere, or there was in the 60s, and of course before the 60s, the 1960s, an atmosphere of terror um, in the Mississippi Delta when you're in the presence of uh, white folks, especially in a place like a, a white-operated grocery store that serves mostly black clientele and is maybe not excited to do that. And so the Chinese found a ready-made niche, kind of, and so they had the most astonishing occupational concentration ever seen. I mean, you know, we know that Chinese were often launderers and restaurateurs in, in the West. Well, about 20% of them were launderers. In Mississippi, 96% of all the Chinese Americans in the Mississippi Delta ran grocery stores. That's a concentration. So that's how come, you know, it, it, it just tested some interesting sociological ideas, you know. How could they start out black and wind up white in terms of prestige, which is what they did? Well, right. my book tells you. Opportunity, opportunity. How interesting that is. All right, but niche, let's do you know. this. Yeah. But then, let me tell you this. So that's, that's not why I got interested in studying history textbooks. Um, that's, that was going to be my next question. There you go. Well, studying history textbooks is, 
incredibly boring, among other things, because they're so badly written. But I got to Tougaloo College, uh, my first full-time teaching job. Now, Tougaloo is a very good college, uh, but it's small, and it's black, and it's in far-off Mississippi, so most folks haven't heard of it. Um, and I taught there for seven years. But my very first year there, I was teaching the courses I expected to be teaching in sociology, uh, and I was also asked to teach a course called the Freshman Social Science Seminar. And I did teach that course. Now, that course was invented by the history department, and it was invented to introduce students to sociology and psych and anthro, you know the drill, poli-sci, econ. Right. Uh, and it did this in the context of African-American history. Uh, made sense. Ninety-nine percent of our students have been African-American. Now, when you're in that history, that's the same chronology as, shall we say, regular American history. So right. the second semester begins not only after Christmas, but it also begins after the Civil War with, of course, Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So I had a new group of students that January afternoon. I still remember even kind of how they were sitting, because it was an aha experience for me. I didn't want to do all the talking that first day of class. So I asked my students, okay, well, what is Reconstruction? Well, what happened back then? And astoundingly, 16 of my 17 students said, well, Reconstruction was the period right after the Civil War, when blacks took over the government of the southern states, and they screwed up. Um, they were too soon out of slavery, and they screwed up, and white folks had to take control again. Well, it turns out there's at least three direct lies in that sentence. Uh, blacks never took over the government of the southern states. All of the southern states had white governors throughout Reconstruction. All but one had a white legislative majority. Um, second of all, the Reconstruction governments did not screw up. Uh, Mississippi, in particular, had probably the best government during Reconstruction that it had at any point later on in the 19th century. They started the public school system for both races. They uh, passed better state constitutions than the uh, southern states have ever had before or since, uh, and so on. Uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking, my God, what must it do to you to believe that the one time your race was center stage in American history they screwed up. If it was true, of course, that's another matter. You have to come to terms with this. Why did this happen? Got to learn from it. But it right. didn't happen. This is an example of what I have come to call BS history, by which, of course, I mean bad sociology. Um, and <laughs> the um, how could my students have believed it? Well, I went off to nearby high schools, and this was just before massive school desegregation in Mississippi. So I went off to nearby black high schools, and I watched black teachers teaching all black classes, white supremacist BS history, including these three lies that I just mentioned, because they were just teaching what was in the textbook, particularly the textbook for the course history of Mississippi required in ninth grade. Uh, and the textbook was just terrible. It was completely counterfactual. So after about a year and a half of trying to get somebody else to do it, I finally bit the bullet, got a grant, got some students and faculty involved at Tougaloo, and also at Millsaps College, the nearby white school, and we wrote a new history of Mississippi. And then Mississippi wouldn't adopt it. Uh, now, about half of all states in the U.S. are, uh, they adopt states, uh, they adopt textbooks statewide. Of course, Texas is notorious for what they do these days. They adopt right. statewide. All of the southern states adopt statewide. So if you don't get on the state adoption list. You don't get used, even by the private schools, the parochial schools, the Catholic schools, and so on. So in Mississippi history, they only had two books. Mississippi usually you know, adopts three to five books in any given subject. But by a, a vote of two to five, uh, they rejected our book and just adopted, we might call it, their book. Uh, and there were, of course, two blacks and five whites on the adoption committee, so I think you can probably do the math there. Um, right. So we wound up having to sue them, and the lawsuit is called Lowen et al. versus Turnipseed et al. Uh, yes, there are people in Mississippi named Turnipseed, um, and uh, eventually we won it. Uh, but that whole escapade showed me that history can be a weapon and that it can be used against you, and that it had been used against my students. And so I've been studying it ever since. That's really interesting. And, and we've got a break, a hard break coming up. But when we come back, you flesh this story out some with 
part of the interrogation, how uh, how one of the witnesses uh, actually inflamed the judge. I think and, it's a story about turnip seed that you want me to tell. Yeah, and I'll ask you to do that as soon as we fun. get back. All we'll, right, we'll enjoy that. All right, we're speaking with Professor James Lowen about his life and book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. It's a great read. Okay, we have a video for you today featuring our guest discussing Lies My Country Told Me, so join Ravinder in the chat room. If you're listening on the dial, remember, you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself, and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success. From accelerated learning to relationships. From habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor James Lowen about his life and book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a bit of a hobby for me. It's a new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. 
Indeed, music has been shown to change the way we think. We can get a fair amount of self-disclosure sometimes in the music that our guests choose. So on that, we just played Buked and Scorned by Harry Belafonte. So please tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you and how does it instruct us about who you are? I am delighted to hear it. And let me say that I heard that for the very first time just now. And, and let really? me explain. Um, that is the original gospel hymn, Buked and Scorned. And the song I knew, and that I knew very well and know, uh, is the civil rights anthem that was derived from that song for the Mississippi part of the civil rights movement. And, um, you know, even even songs like um, We Shall Overcome, of course, originally started as a labor song. Um, right. So a lot of civil rights songs had a previous existence as a gospel song, and and this one did too. And I just learned it on your program. Um, <laughs> well, good. The, I, I didn't, you know, I you you uh, I responded by email to your request, and so we didn't talk it through. And I think it's it's beautiful. Um, let me say about this about the the piece I expected to hear. Um, a lot of people basically identify the civil rights movement as Martin Luther King at all. And Martin Luther King was certainly a wonderfully evocative and, and uh, eloquent spokesman for the movement. But the movement was largely local people in every community, and in Mississippi in particular, which was the scariest single state uh, in the nation in terms of its race relations. Um, King played almost no role. He was busy in Alabama where he lived and in Georgia where he also lived. Uh, so the Mississippi song, uh, Buked and Scorned, the civil rights song, celebrates, among other things, uh, people like uh, well, two different um, African-American men in southwestern Mississippi who were murdered by white supremacists simply because they tried to vote um, and things like that. Uh, and it's just a heartbreaking song. And when... And, uh, so it's, it, it, it brings back to me uh, memories of the Freedom Summer of 1964 in Mississippi, um, memories of the incredibly brave uh, black residents, and then also some white and black uh, people who moved into the state for the, uh, three months, or in some cases the rest of their lives, uh, to cause change in race relations in the toughest state in the United States. You know, and, and your choice of music is so compatible with your life's work and your passion. You know, I have to tell you, I mean, sometimes we've had guests come on the show that are all about, you know, hey, think positive, life is wonderful, you know, everything happens the way it's supposed to happen, you're perfect right where you are. And then they give us music, and the lyrics of the music is, you've done me wrong, you betrayed me, you shot, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, there's such a disconnect there that I think what we're really getting is a look into their own inner psyche. Anyway, I appreciate that, and that's my, my mistake, because No, it's you not a mistake. Did. I think it, it, it added to my life anyway. I'm glad to hear it. Okay, well, good. We'll leave it at that. Listen, before the break, I suggested that, well, we discussed you explaining the trial that I was speaking about. Would you pick it up from there, sir? Sure. So uh, the Mississippi State Textbook Rating Committee rejected our book, which was titled Mississippi Conflict and Change. Um, let me mention that um, state history is often considered kind of a backwater of the history profession. And state histories, especially at that time, weren't very good. And ours was the first state history in any state that tried to be accurate, that quoted original sources so that you'd actually hear what uh, civil rights workers said or what Mississippi governors said, and, and you'd learn what they did in firsthand reports. Uh, it's really quite a book. Uh, the photos are, are really good, too. Uh, most state histories just had photos of head and shoulders photos of the governors, for instance. Well, unless you believe that you can read a lot of character from mindset, from the eyeset of people or how their nose looks, um, you don't learn a whole lot from the head and shoulders photo. But we had all kinds of photos of, of real things 
happening from, from slavery times all the way up to uh, the present. Well, mm-hmm. uh, so those were among the reasons, I think, why our book was rejected, because it was too uh, exciting, too interesting. And there was a, uh, I'm going to say, Perry Mason moment in this, in this case. Um, right. I'm going to have to explain what Perry Mason is, I know. But no, um, yeah. you'll know, but a lot of people don't. Okay. Uh, so we sued in, in the U.S. District Court in the Northern District of Mississippi. Uh, the lead defendant was named John Turnipseed. Uh, I got to pick the lead defendant since I was the lead plaintiff, and one of the reasons I picked him was because of his name, if the truth be known. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of cool. Um, okay. And incidentally, I screwed myself out of my 15 seconds of fame, you know, because like Brown v. Board, everybody calls that Brown, right? Plessy right. v. Ferguson, that's Plessy. Lowen v. Turnipseed is pretty well known, but what do you think it's called? All right, I give. Go. Turnipseed. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You yep, I do. <laughs> anyway, uh, so um, uh, the, we, for a week, we had expert witnesses from around the state and even from around the nation that testified that our book was not only acceptable for use, but it was much better than their book and should have been adopted. Uh, we had an expert on the Choctaw Indians. We had Margaret Walker Alexander, famous uh, black novelist and poet and researcher on the subject of slavery. Uh, we had uh, an expert witness from, from Harvard in social psychology. We had all kinds of, uh, we had an expert witness from Ole Miss on the subject of uh, Faulkner and how we handled Mississippi literature compared to how the other book did. So right. we really proved our book superior, not just acceptable. Uh, and then it was the state's turn. And the Perry Mason moment, and for your younger uh, listeners, I need to say, Perry Mason was a famous TV uh lawyer show in which every single week there was always a trial that had its dramatic moment when Perry Mason was proved right and the terrible DA on the other side was proved wrong. Well, this case had a Perry Mason moment, Um, and it happened, in fact, by coincidence, when John Turnipseed was on the stand, because the assistant attorney general for the state of Mississippi said to Mr. Turnipseed, asked Mr. Turnipseed, why did you reject this book? And he had the court turn, had us all turn to page, I think it was 181, where we had a photo of a lynching. Now, a lynching, of course, is defined as a public murder uh, done with considerable support from the, com- uh, from the community. And right. in this case, a black man was being burned to death, and in the background there were all kinds of nicely dressed uh, white women and men who were happy to be photographed committing this terrible felony, Right. which proves, of course, that they didn't think anything was going to be done about it, and nothing was done about it. So that was our photo of a lynching. Well, it turns out that back then, no state history textbook and no U.S. history textbook had a photo of a lynching. And i got to tell you, even today, only one photo of a lynching is in any of the 18 history textbooks, U.S. history textbooks, because many people think, oh, this is just too strong for 11th graders. Well, that, that's BS. That's bad sociology. Anyway, Mr. Turnipseed thought so. And so after he turned to, had us all turned to this page, he said the following, and I'm quoting him exactly. I committed it to memory. He said, now, you know, some ninth graders, especially black male ninth graders, are pretty big. And we worried, or at least I worried, that teachers, especially white lady teachers, would have trouble controlling their classes with material like this, and he pointed to the photo of the lynching, in the book. Well, we had, of course, pre-tested our book with an overwhelmingly white class and with an overwhelmingly black class, and they had both liked it all to pieces better than their book. So we had material for rebuttal testimony on exactly this point. But we didn't have to use it, because at that moment, the judge... 83-year-old white Mississippian, Orma Smith, a man of honor and integrity, he took over the questioning, and he said, quote, but that happened, didn't it? Didn't Mississippi have more lynchings than any other state? And Turnipseed said, well, yes, but that all happened so long ago. Why dwell on it now? (laughs) And the judge said, well, it is a history book. And we poked each other and said, we're going to win this case. (laughs) 
a true Perry Mason moment. I have to ask you, since you brought up, you know, you had a Native American expert there. Uh, on the Internet, there is a story that is cited in your book, and I, I didn't find it in the book, that said two Native Americans became shipwrecked in Holland in 60 BCE, according to your research. Is that true? I think so. They may have been dead. I'm not sure if they made it alive or not. And I don't have my footnote in front of me because I didn't know you were going to ask me, but I'm sure there is a footnote somewhere in the book to it. Okay. So the the fact of the matter is you believe that they did discover Europe before Europe discovered America. Well, here's the other thing, though. People discovered America, so to speak, long before Columbus did. Yeah, Uh, And there's absolutely no doubt that, well, Columbus almost for sure went to Iceland. And you cannot go to Iceland without learning that the people from Iceland have been further west, you know. Uh, They they all know that, and they talk about it, and they talked about it then. So I actually think that Columbus knew that there was something in the way that he wasn't really going to go to India like he he said he thought he was, but that he was going to, quote, discover, unquote, something new. And and one of my pieces of evidence for that, besides the fact that uh, he went to Iceland, is he got the Spanish king and queen to agree to this astounding uh, treaty, really, with, with him that gives him the right to 10% of all the produce that ever comes back from uh, any land that's new to be discovered. You know, it doesn't refer to uh, stuff that you might be getting from India. So right. I think that, uh, but we're not sure. We, we can't be sure of that. Okay, you, you know, when you bring that up, I I, I I have to, I guess I have to cover this. You know, when I was in high school, I had more than my share of encounters, I guess, with what I thought was simply nonsense and teachers that I didn't think, you know, forgive me, I just didn't think they had the qualifications to teach. Um, but, for example, I knew enough about the world at, at, at when I was in high school to know that the Greeks had calculated the circumference of the Earth. I think it was yes. uh, Eratosthenes that actually was, is given credit for that. So they calculated the circumference of the Earth. So I'm sitting in a class, and I'm listening to, you know, we thought the world was flat. Columbus was, you know, approaching the king and queen of Spain. They were all arguing we were going to sail off the end of this flat thing. And I'm going, where does that come from? I mean, you know, what was all this history loss? This is complete where- BS, of course. And it turns out that if it wasn't exactly invented by Washington Irving, he's the guy who established it. Now, Washington Irving, you may remember, is a novelist. He's writing fiction, usually. He wrote right. the Knickerbocker Tales about the Headless Horseman and stuff like that. And right. he wrote a, uh, I think, three-volume biography of Columbus in the 1800s that proved to be the best-selling biography of the entire century. And he told the Flat Earth story. Now, besides every point you made is correct, but besides that, if you are a seaman, just in, order, in fact, if you just live on the seashore, you literally see the roundness of the Earth because the ship disappears over the horizon, even if you just listen to the words, you know. And first of all, you can't see the hull, and then you can't see the sails, and finally you can't see the little flag on the top. Well, if the world was flat, that would not happen. It would get littler and littler and littler, and it would just be a dot, and then you couldn't see the dot. So everybody knew the world was round. Native Americans knew it was round, too. They, they called it the back of a turtle, uh, and they didn't really think that it was a turtle and had legs. You know, it was right. symbolic of the roundness of the world. Uh, so the idea that Christopher Columbus proved the earth, the earth round is just an example of the complete BS that students are still learning in K-12 education. And they are still learning it. That That's the scary the thing. They are still yeah. yeah, you know, now, in well, 18... 18- s- the, the idea that the Dutch bought Manhattan for $24 worth of beads, that is so stupid. Uh, I, what it does, of course, it, it's not as innocent as the idiotic story about Columbus, because it converts anybody who believes it into a white supremacist, because you can't believe that without believing that these Indians are pretty stupid, you know? <laughs> I know, you know, and, and yeah, okay. Let me let me ask you about this one. 
uh, we often cover spirituality, but um, in 1876, Andrew Dixon White, the first president of Cornell University, and some would say Cornell was one of the first secular schools, universities anyway, uh, penned a now historically infamous book called The Warfare of Sciences. And this was all about the history of the warfare between science and theology in Christendom. Now, there is a a scholar, um, uh, Professor Lawrence Principe, but he also is one of those that you cite, I believe, I'm going to infer, he's one of those that's on a textbook who never read the textbook. So Lawrence Principe of John Hopkins University flatly states that the book belongs in a museum of how not to do history. What are your thoughts on this sort of controversial invention of history in books? Well, wait a minute. What, what, I didn't quite understand the question and how it relates to this guy from Cornell. Okay, well, the fellow from Cornell uh, wrote a book called The History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom. Okay, I understand that part. Now, and, and there are many that believe the only reason he did that was because he was, uh, you know, he, he was establishing a non-religious institution and he had to create this separation between science and religion in order to establish or further establish the superiority or credibility of Cornell. Okay. Okay. So then along comes uh, Professor Lawrence Principe. And I believe he's one of those that you cite in your book of John Hopkins University. And he says this book is just an invention and it's a how to not write uh, a history book. This book by the Cornell guy. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know anything about that controversy, of course. Um, I, so I, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure what I have to say about it. Okay. All right. Well, then, then let's just pass. I'll say, let's... This. I'll say this about textbooks and religion, though. Um, yeah. That we have a separation of church and state. Uh, we're famous for it. Uh, but I think countries like Lebanon and so on show that it's a pretty good idea because we don't get torn apart by religion the way some of these countries might that don't have that separation so so well established. But some people misunderstand the separation of church and state. So we actually have some textbooks uh, of American history that uh, try to treat the the invention of Utah, for instance, without mentioning the Mormons. But that's not easy to do. You know, that's bad history. <laughs> if you say in a textbook, well, the LDS Church, uh, having uh, been driven from Missouri and then having all kinds of pressures on them in Illinois, uh, wanted to go to a place where the federal government hardly had any power and, and nobody was going to bother them, and so they went to Utah. If you say all that, you have not said anything wrong about religion. You're not trying to persuade people to become Mormon. You're not trying to dissuade them from becoming Mormon. Uh, so, of course, you need to write the history of religion when you're writing the history of Utah. And the same is true for the history of Massachusetts, for that matter, or, or the recent history of, say, Brooklyn, you know? So, or for uh, that matter, the history of America, really. Yeah, I mean, isn't the establishment course. of freedom of religion what a large part of this country is about? Yeah. So, you know, well, the, the, the textbooks will say that, that, uh, the part about freedom of religion, but they tend not to say the part that when they're ever they're talking about any specific religion and the role that it, uh, in fact, did play, because they're so afraid of uh, running into some kind of lawsuit from the ACLU or some lawsuit, on the other hand, from maybe white Protestants in Texas, you know, who are going to demand that you, that you say that, the United States was invented as a white Protestant nation, and if you don't say that, we're going to, you know. And, and so the result is this is a topic that, uh, that the textbook publishers are just so cautious about everything, and so they don't want to say anything about religion. And as a result, this is another area where we get distorted history. You know, we're just simply going to have to bring you back to the show, not have to. I'm going to love to invite you back to the show, because I want to talk to you about how, you know, Woodrow Wilson, his popularity changes. I want to talk to you about the Confederate. I mean, the why question behind 9-11. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, including we could pick up Irving Stone's Mountain Meadow Massacre 
uh, story in Men to Match My Mountains, the biography of Brigham Young. And, uh, you know, some of this. Anyway, there's so much, but we're almost out of time. And I want everyone to know how they can reach you, how they can learn more about you, um, you know, okay. get your books, etc. Well, you can buy my books, actually, at almost any bookstore, whether you go to your friendly neighborhood bookstore or you deal from the huge A word on the web. I think that's Amazon, uh, or wherever you get your books. Um, Lies, my teacher told me, is still selling about 100 copies a day. So it's in, it's in bookstores in neighborhoods, and it's still online, of course. Um, there's a follow-up book that's hilarious in part, and that's called Lies Across America. And so if you've already read Lies, my teacher told me, you might want to try Lies Across America. You'll really enjoy it. It treats 100 different historic sites across the country that get history wrong. Uh, and if you want to just read more for free, uh, type James W. Lowen, and that's L-O-E-W-E-N, into Google, and my uh, website will come up right quick. And, um, and then you can noodle around there. You can take a history quiz, which you will flunk. But you'll have more fun flunking my quiz than passing any quiz you ever took in high school in history. Uh, you can look at my work on sundown towns, and you can do lots of other things. And you will come back, right, Professor? Uh, and we will uh, discuss. But I write my next book first. <laughs> well, no, no, we, we didn't talk about you know the your second book, the follow up book, the fi- yeah. the humorous book. So we we'll just plan on bringing you back for that. All right. This okay. book. Lies My Teacher Told Me, a great read. You owe it to yourself to know the truth. Get the book. Thank you for your work, Professor, and for your willingness to share it with us all. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you all for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>